What's up, everyone? I'm your host, Christian Black. And I'm your co-host, Matthew Gorich-Gorovsky. And welcome to Season 2 of Our Small Majority. This season, we wanted to steer our focus more on women of color after the Breonna Taylor case. Oh, well, excuse me, during the case. And on today's episode, we have a very special guest, our first filmmaker. She earned a master's in film and television production through the School of Cinematic Arts at USC. She also has a BA in Communication Studies and Afro-American Studies from University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Now this girl has been all over the world, y'all. Asia, Africa, South America, North America, Caribbean, you name it. Both for world missions and nonprofit organizations. Shoot, I know that we really excited to meet her mainly because she's a filmmaker like me and Matt. Oh, and by the way, these interviews were recorded right before the 2020 presidential election. So you may hear some distraught predictions. <laughs> Let's go. How did you get started inside of your work being a director and a filmmaker? Oh, man. So my story goes way back to childhood. Um, I grew up in a small town called Kinston, North Carolina, and um, it's kind of near the coast. Um, and during the summer times, like, you know, there was a lot of adventures to get into, but sometimes there would be, um, you know, storms that would come just like randomly in the afternoon. And I had an auntie that would like babysit. And a lot of times, like when the storms would come, she would shut the lights off, cut the TV off, like, and she'd be like, the Lord is talking. And so some summers he had a lot to say and I found myself kind of bored. And so, um, I basically started just writing little short stories um, out of boredom. And then um, by the time I got to high school, I ended up doing a, um, a senior project. It was like one of our requirements to graduate where I like piecemealed a short film and it kind of sent the light bulb off that, wow, like I can put so many creative things into one bundle if I pursue mm -hmm. film. And so the rest was history from there. What was that first film about in high school? <laughs> so um, that first film was actually a story about um, a set of twins. Um, one that was like, I guess, the like model citizen and one that was kind of living, um, you know, living life on the edge. And so um, he had gotten into some trouble. And when trouble came to his door, his, his uh, twin brother ended up being the one that got um, murdered. Um, in a mistaken identity. So it kind of had like inspirations of like boys in the hood, but like with this whole like twist of like mistaken identity. Gotcha. Wow. Gotcha. That's, that's much more uh, compelling than the first film I ever made. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was a kid of the nineties. So, you know, like the new Jack era and all of those like films that kind of came through that time, like, kind of mm -hmm. you know had a little bit of an influence but yeah I, I decided to go the dramatic route first time out the gate <laughs> i feel right. like a a big a big uh for our area youtube was our one of a a big uh air like our, that was my first introduction to like filmmaking was youtube i feel like that one for our generation that's very common now making just like vlogs and stuff as your first films <laughs> Yeah, it's so cool that you have that. Like, I I really wish that I, I was like a few years off from the origins of YouTube. But I remember when it first came out and I was like, well, why in the world would I like post a video of myself online? Like, why would I do that? And like right. now that's like 
the way of the world and like how we operate like everybody wants to share what they're up to or like you know just even having like an open door and an audience for like being able to share your story I think it's like so cool that YouTube and other platforms like that exist um so yeah definitely y'all y'all were lucky like <laughs> for me like that's the first film I did it was like it's bootleg but it was kind of like fun thinking back on it because like I didn't we didn't have mm -hmm. like I didn't have like ready access to like editing software. So I literally had, two, right. I'm really dating myself by saying this, but like I had two VCRs and I literally was like tape to tape, like doing my edits, which mm -hmm. granted oh. it wasn't a thing that had to be done. It was just a kid that just wanted to do something and didn't have all the tools mm -hmm. to do it. And so I just like got resourceful and figured it out. So I had fades and sound effects. I don't know how I did it now, but I was, mm -hmm. <laughs> I was definitely ghetto rigging some things <laughs> to make that movie happen. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's awesome. So, well, what would you say, um, how has like your sort of your style, your story making, and even like the focus of what stories you want to cover has changed from, you know, you being that young filmmaker in high school and, um, you know, making anything and everything, you know, what ideas that you have or whatever you had to where you're at right now. Um, how has that transformed? How has certain events, you know, influence what you cover? Um, that's a really good question. So um, one thing I can say that's like been pretty consistent since I ever wanted to tell stories is like, I found myself very drawn to like stories of the black experience. Um, one of the biggest inspirations for me just wanting to like even become a storyteller was you know like looking on screen and even though there was like when I was growing up there was a good variety of like black content I, I kept finding that my story felt like it was missing like especially growing up in the south because like a lot of times they would show the south of like crosses burning on the lawn but I didn't have that kind of experience even though you know certain injustices were definitely in place um, there was a lot of fun. There was a lot of adventure. There was a lot of things that I just felt like wasn't quite there or maybe wasn't quite as nuanced as what I found to be my experience. And so I figured instead of like sitting on the sideline complaining about it, I would maybe just try to add to the conversation because I, I kind of look at like, you know, all of the films that are out there as part of a conversation. Some films work for some and not for others. Um, and so that thread kind of kept consistent even up to this day. But just naturally, like as I grew and evolved as a person, I had more lived experiences. I was exposed to more things. I traveled a lot. Um, and so I think that a lot of that had influence on the types of stories that, you know, I would come to tell. Um, and so like now at this juncture, I won't say that I'm limited to it, but I definitely find myself really drawn to like um, stories of like black women. Um, and, you know, a lot of times we celebrate the strength of black women, but I like to look at like the layers of what makes us us um, because I think we have a very like unique experience, um, especially in America. Um, but really mm -hmm. just stories that speak to me, like, um, you know, stories that are very human, like where people, sometimes it could be like an epic adventure. Sometimes it could be just the most regular mundane thing, but like something of a character feeling like a gem um, that might be just like hidden in plain view. That's, that's something definitely that I'm, I'm, typically drawn to in my storytelling to this day well it's awesome well um you know even moving shifting towards that and more story-driven stories for black women how for you personally as a storyteller what challenges did you face as you started diving more into the industry um and started noticing that 
because um, at least inside my opinion, there isn't enough representation when it comes to Black women telling their stories. Um, and I just want to get your perspective on what did you first face while developing your career and a name for yourself and uh, making more and more um, stories just focusing on the Black woman's point of view. Um, and also, what are you up to now when it comes to, you know, pushing that story even more during such a critical time? Um, so I think um, I, I would definitely say from the time that I got started in the industry to where we are now, um, we've definitely, we're definitely turning a corner. Um, if you just to kind of like, I guess if I had to use a word um, to describe what my experience was initially was invisibility. Um, I think that, you know, black women, you know, whether it's in the film industry or just in the political sphere or anywhere in this country, like we tend to be very present, but unseen. Um, I don't know if that's specific to just being taken for granted or what the case might be. But a lot of times, like, unless we're kind of like standing up on the table and making a lot of noise, like it's, it's like the, we're sometimes finding ourselves screaming with the mic on mute, for lack of a better way to explain it. Um, and so I definitely experienced that even too in the industry. Um, but now it's been interesting because I will say probably inside of the last like eight or so years, at least like um, there's been more attention given to um, black women leading stories, um, both in front of camera and behind the scenes with, you know, filmmakers like Ava DuVernay or um, Dee Reese um, or writers like Misha Green. Um, and so like, and speaking of Misha Green too, like um, Lovecraft Country, I know that's been like a hot button um, project here um, mm -hmm. over the last couple months as the show has been airing. Um, but just seeing like the depths and the layers of how she has explored the black experience, but specifically like how she's highlighted women and all of these like very like specific but nuanced aspects of our experience has been like it's been unreal. I, I, I kind of feel like how probably our elders felt when Barack Obama first got elected president, where it's like they never thought they might see that in their lifetime. And just to be able to see those kind of stories um, like that unfold, you know, while, you know, as among contemporaries, it's like very inspirational. Um, and it's something that I definitely, um, you know, as a, as a filmmaker, want to continue to um, aspire towards too because there's been a lot of ideas that I've had along the way and I just thought like oh man they're not going to want that but I'm gonna just keep going for it because you know at the end of the day I didn't come to Hollywood for the glitz and glam of it I actually came to be able to just tell a meaningful story that resonated with me but I hope would also resonate with larger audiences so um, it's, it's been really inspiring to see the corner that we've turned um, in terms of what I'm working on right now um, I've been doing a lot of um, documentary work um, lately, um, I actually got just got through um, with um, post production on a branded documentary for a um, a shoe company, and you know, right now, for better or for worse, like we're kind of you know, black people are kind of like the hot ticket. So you know, a lot of companies are trying to be more inclusive in their hiring practices with folks behind the scenes, um, as well as how they're like portraying in their advertising. And so um, this particular company. Um, decided to focus on a uh, a black female hiker. And you think, whoa, like, mm -hmm. you don't always see that, but there's like a whole community of black mm -hmm. women that are hikers. 
Um, and so um, I actually got a chance to um, direct the story, you know, highlighting her journey. Um, and I'm also working on a, um, a docu-series um, that's a five-parter, and that one is actually focused on um, the Black church and its role in um, social justice activism in the United States um, and how that's evolved over time. Um, so that's two of my more recent projects, but um, I also still work on um, narrative fiction projects too. Um, I've been collaborating with a writer for the last couple of years on um, an anthology project that's like a um, modern reimagining of um, like a set of five Grimm brothers fairy tales, um, but told from the point of view of uh, black girls and women. Um, also in five parts, I don't know if five is like a magic number for me or something, but um, just by coincidence, <laughs> that's also in five parts too. Um, and then I also have a, um, a script that I've been working on, a feature film that's a um, suspense thriller um, that's inspired by Asada Shakur. So that's some of the stuff I'm working wow. on right now. I'm sure there's more, but those are the light that's top a, ones. How, do you, how are you able to juggle so many projects at once? <laughs> no sleep. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> no sleep. That's the no, secret. But- <laughs> But, you know, it's funny, like, um, you know, sometimes people, like, joke about having, like, um, ADD or, you know, or just being, like, you know, kind of, I won't say all over the place, but, like, they bounce from thing to thing. But I think sometimes having a mind like that can be advantageous because, like, I tend to, like, to to keep busy, of course, but, like, I might be in post-production on one thing and pre-production on something else and production on something else. So, like, having that, like, mm-hmm. rotation like that, it just keeps my mind going because I just... I don't do well with just idle hands. <laughs> so the your docu series, uh, we were watching the trailer. It was uh, for reclaiming our collective strength. Yes. Um, and we were wondering what gave you the idea to look into the black church during these times. Um. So you know, with the protesting and everything going on today. Yes. So um, it's, it's a number of things. So um, I've actually been for the past year and a half I've been collaborating or partnering really closely with um, this uh, production company called Hush Harbor Media and they are basically the media arm of a collective of nonprofits and they do um, work nationwide um, even independent of the recent political issues that are going Mm. on so under that umbrella is a group called Live Free there's Faith in Action there's a number of different groups but they're they're a coalition of like clergy um, Black Lives Matter activists and so on um, that work on um, community interventions around like gun violence prevention, um, you know, reversing the cycle of mass incarceration and also, um, you know, fighting against voter suppression, among other things. And so I had already been doing like general like PSA and like media coverage of their work. And then um, the brainchild of one of the um, founders was to really like have a docuseries that captured the work that they're doing collectively in order to like Mm -hmm. inspire hopefully inspire viewers whether they're of the faith community or not to really exercise their um their civic voice um and so from there we've basically taken about 10 years worth of footage that they've had and you know peppered in you know a lot of the um current events that we're dealing with now to to really shape and tell that story um Mm -hmm. and here we are (laughs) So, 
Well, what would you say is like the most interesting thing that you've learned while like in the middle of producing this docuseries or just doing research or whatever? Because um, it, it really hit me after seeing that trailer for it um, because I'm actually a PK. I'm a pastor's kid. So both my mother and my father, um, they have a church out in Gardena. Um, and it just never occurred to me the role of the Black church throughout Black history like when it, when even when it comes to like slavery um for the underground railroad or during the civil rights movement it's usually always steered towards one individual mm-hmm. um but not necessarily a whole community so what was some things that like popped up to you that was really eye opening um i there's there's a couple things so um one of the things just from a historical standpoint is I I knew about how um, like people that were escaping slavery, how they would um, through the Underground Railroad, a lot of times like churches would be involved in that process. But I wasn't so much familiar with something they call hush harbors, where people would gather in secret in the woods to be able to like worship free of like the master's gauge gaze, I should say. Um, and so I thought that was like really interesting how like these like safe spaces were formed um basically beyond church walls um and and kind of like in a way was like a birth of like our struggle for like freedom and equal rights in this country Mm -hmm. um you know as a people and then to like see how it has carried through to today we're now like you know with COVID-19 the doors of churches were forced closed because you know of trying to prevent the spread of the virus so that, you know, churches had to really revisit this idea of how to Mm -hmm. like still maintain the gathering and the closeness of the church when, you know, we didn't have a building to, to, to gather in. And then, you know, while that, all that's going on, then we had the whole incident of this summer with George Floyd to explode so that, you know, then it's like the faith community where like, you know, there's been a lot of, you know, heat and criticism that has come to the black church because, you know, some people say it's not political that, you know, or some people say faith and political stuff should stay separate while other people say, I can't rock with the black church if they're not dealing with my, um, you know, my day-to-day struggles and things like that. So that, you know, the times kind of like forced up a hush harbor type of effect um, all over again for the churches that chose to engage. So yeah, it's just been like really eye-opening to see one, a phrase that I just never knew before, but then also to just see how like there's a thread that kind of has continued on when we maybe were taught in schools to just kind of look at like Martin Luther King or Dr. Martin Luther King, I should say, and, you know, Harriet Tubman and a few. And it's like, no, there was a lot of people consistently over time that were doing the work and it wasn't everybody per se, but it was, you know, definitely a dedicated few. And when you look in like the pages of history, you'll often start to see like, oh, wait, this happened in that church. This church was at the forefront of that. Okay, like it, it just all starts to like connect like dots. Um, so yeah, it's, that, that was a really roundabout way to answering. But yeah, it's been a lot, of, a lot of learning, but I think just the idea of a hush harbor and what it meant back then and what has come to mean now um, has really um, stood out to me probably the most as something I learned. Right, right. And well, as going back to COVID-19 and even the incident with George Floyd, um, with all of these things going around and there's a whole lot of 
um, things sprouting up in order to promote like not only black storytellers, but like black businesses or um, black history. And people are finally open to educating themselves now. Um, mm -hmm. So what would you say would be just a few things in order to be more progressive or become an advocate or just things that people should be aware of in order to make sure that we were able to support not only black people and black artists, but black women in general. Um, because for me personally, after the Breonna Taylor verdict, um, it was just, it was shocking to figure out the decision and why the officers were charged. Um, and when it comes to advocating for black women, because when talking with either, you know, other colleagues or family members and stuff like that, um, I get a lot of people that agree that black women are always put at the lower end of the totem pole. Mm -hmm. um, and really people are now open to um, um, trying to voice black women's um, not only opinions more, but how to help more. So as someone inside of your position, what do you think, you know, a piece of advice, if you could, to the whole world. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that that's a that's a really powerful question. Um, and I would have to say, like, as a black woman myself, and and also having observed like so many black women that I consider my heroes, um, I would say probably one of the best things that people collectively can do is to listen to black women. Like I think, like I said earlier, you know, sometimes it can feel like we're screaming with a mic on mute. And literally, I think if people just like tuned in their ears to listen, like we're we're telling the truth like more times than not. Like, so I think just something as simple as just listening, you know, that that listening is an acknowledgement that number one, we exist. And that, you know, hopefully with that listening, there comes to be some level of understanding. Um, you know, we are wired, you know, just based on our experience in this country to, you know, to stand tall, to like, you know, fight the good fight. But, you know, just knowing that we have a community of support around us that doesn't see us as just an object or a trend can go such a long way. And you think, well, I mean, just listening, that's it. But in listening, you know, comes to understanding and with understanding, there can be action and meaningful action, you know, because sometimes like, you know, just even for the black community as a whole, sometimes people can be well intended and try to do things for us or speak for us. And you'd be like, no, no, that's not what we want. That's not what we said, you know, and, you know, that kind of thing can happen sometimes when, you know, a person thinks that they get you, but they don't take the time to actually hear and understand you. And so I think, yeah, for black women, especially at this juncture and going forward so that we don't lose um, momentum in the progress that's being made right now, I think listening to black women with the purpose of understanding and ultimately, um, you know, going into action on behalf of black women is the way to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree when it comes to that. Um, so when it comes to, uh, because it, it just, it's always shocking because it, it was a quick, 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 um, decision when it come when it came to George Floyd and the thing that happened to him and even though it still shouldn't have took that long in order to make sure that some form of justice happened um, it took almost twice as long for Breonna Taylor and in your opinion why do you think 
you know, this over-exaggeration or like this sort of attitude for black women uh, has been put set into place. Um, like one example I always hear about is how black women are never taken seriously inside the medical field. Um, and if a black woman is coming in pain, um, then their conditions or what they're reporting is never, is always taken with a grain of salt. Um, so what would you say is sort of the root of that? I, I think there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of layers to why that happens. Um, for, in the case of George Floyd, um, we know that, you know, a lot, a lot of the swift backlash that came was on account of the fact that there were, there was video footage to support what happened, um, mm-hmm. where with Breonna Taylor, and it's unfortunate, it, it really frustrates me that in this country, people don't like to take our word for it. Like when we say terrible things are happening, it's, it seems to be a question until you see the terrible mm-hmm. thing happen. And then the, and then the tape has to be on loop to keep people believing it until they get bored and go on to something else. And so unfortunately with Breonna Taylor, she didn't have those, have that footage, but then you think, okay, well, okay, if there's footage, then we'll be fine. Right. But then fast forward mm-hmm. to um, what, and I know this is controversial, but what happened to Megan the stallion where there actually was footage of her stepping down mm-hmm. on the ground with bloody footsteps. And yet, you know, people decided mm-hmm. to like make all types of like hateful memes to make fun of her to say, what does she do? Like, you know, all of these things where people tend to not have any form of compassion or see the humanity in this black woman or a lot of other black women that have been through like really horrible, um, abusive situations. Um, and so when it comes to the medical field, even I, I have, um, you know, secondhand experience with that myself. Um, I have a, a, a younger sister that is um, special needs and she had a very um, easily treatable um, issue, her, her gallbladder, which is kind of like she had basically gallbladder issues. And to get your gallbladder and removed mm-hmm. is like just a notch over from an appendicitis. And basically they were like, well, you know, get ready to say your goodbyes because there's nothing we can do. And my mom had to like, beg and plead with them for them to do something for her and it fell on a lot of deaf ears until like one doctor just kind of had an ounce of a heart because my mom wouldn't let up but all that to Mm -hmm. say it's like there's there seems to be a disconnect with seeing us one just as humans as peers Mm -hmm. um but then also like when we say we hurt it's it's almost again like the mic is on mute and and our words aren't being heard or being taken seriously and so um, that can be a constant frustration um, to to live that experience because, you know, if we are stoic, then we're celebrated for being strong. But again, no one then hears our pain. But then when we um, we speak out and we speak with force because the urgency is that high, then we're told that we have a nasty attitude and that we're difficult and all of these other things. And so it becomes a, um, a, a loop of no win um, in that regard. And so, you know, that's, that's just something that you know, I wish that society would think better of because, you know, we're mothers, we're sisters, we're daughters, we're friends, we're all of these different things. Um, but, you know, a lot of times it it becomes a situation where we're just not seen or heard. And it's it's not for lack of being present. That's for sure. Wow. Wow. Most definitely. Um, 
shoot. I don't know where to go from there. I'm just soaking <laughs> all that in right now. <laughs> yeah. I know it got, it got kind of heavy. It's like, oh, man. <laughs> it got heavy. Like, whoo. <laughs> it's the truth, though. It's mm-hmm. the truth. You know? It really is. And um, just when it comes to... I just never understood when it comes to even shifting, going in even a little deeper <laughs> for that. Um what now another question for you what would you say to black men in supporting their sisters uh when it comes to injustices and things like that because you hear all of the time not only do black women have to face you know the onset or you know the the injustices or the pressures of the outside but even their own even black men uh, the men that they raised or the men that's supposed to be your brother or the one that's supposed to protect you. Um, what's your opinion? I would on say, that? well, one of the, it's okay. So it's definitely, it's definitely frustrating when, when I've encountered that. Um, I would, one of the biggest challenges I would put forward for, um, for black men. And I know that some black men have already risen to this challenge is to see black women as their peers and not their prop. Um, you know, a lot of times we, when we speak to our unique struggles, because we have an intersectional struggle where it's like our race is an issue, but also our gender. And then it's not like you can put either in a silo. It's like the, the two experiences of that meeting creates a unique lens and a unique journey for us. And so sometimes when we try to speak to that, you know, some, some black men might be like, no, no, no. Like, let's focus on race right now. Like, you know, we'll get to that later, but it's like, we don't get to flip the switch and say we're right. not women anymore, you know? Right. And so, um, yeah, I think, you know, just, just regarding us as peers and, and when I say, and not as props, that's not to sound catchy, but a lot of times, like I've seen situations where, you know, black men demand our support, but then their support is not reciprocated. It's like, it's clear as black people in this country we're all going through it. Like, it's safe to say we're all going through it. We do not have to start arguing about who has it worse. It's just, you know, being black is great, but the things that we're put up against suck. So we can just all agree on that and stop with the whole who has it worse thing. But sometimes I've seen it. I've had it happen where, like, you know, we kind of devolve into these discussions around, like, you know, who has it worse or, like, why we need to focus on race over gender. And at the end of the day, it's like we, you know, just as much as we as women support our men or should support our men, we we also need that covering and protection from black men. And just know that like, you know, in this in this um, relentless um, oppression and things that we face that like we have to be each other's allies, not even allies, it's, it goes stronger than that. We have to, mm-hmm. we need to bond to each other like, in a way that's unbreakable because the world means us no good. So like the last thing we need to do then is to be like turning on each other and infighting or hurting those that are closest to us because, you know, we have nowhere to let off that steam, you know? Right. Right. Well, what would you say is like a few peers or inspirations, not only as like a filmmaker, but as um, like an advocate and someone that's actually um, pushing um, you know, this new attitude while things are fresh, while things are hot right now. Um, what would you say for both men and women is a huge inspiration for you inside of the black community? 
Um, let's see, you're saying like as in a person or as in like a a thing or like a thing to do? Mm-hmm. Um, for both, for as a person, an individual, um, and even as a storyteller. Oh, okay. Um, so as a storyteller, I think um, you know, there's there's a couple ways um that there's inspiration. I mean, obviously seeing other people um that are that are you know steps ahead on the road doing it and paving the way and creating new opportunities for themselves and therefore normalizing us in these spaces goes a long way like um I had mentioned before like you know Ava DuVernay and Dee Reese like those are you know two women filmmakers that like I really admire Julie Dash is one from like you know a different generation um, that, mm-hmm. you know, has made me excited. Um, there's also, um, I'm blanking. Oh, um, Nia, I think it's Nia DaCosta. She's, um, doing the reboot of Candyman. Again, I'm so excited. Mm-hmm. She's actually directing a Marvel film. And it's mm-hmm. like, you know, one of my big dreams one day is to be able to like direct something on that level. And so just seeing mm-hmm. people go before, go before me and people even, you know, generations younger than me to, to do these things and, you know, to make it clear that, you know, nothing is out of reach and that, you know, these things are possible when just a generation ago, it might not have been as much. So um, that goes a long way. And then, you know, same thing for for black men. Like, you know, we, we have like so many great examples. You have like Ryan Coogler and all these great other filmmakers, Stephen Capel. You know, I'm thinking about like the new guard of filmmakers um, and they're getting out there and they're telling our stories. But it's not always just like trauma porn. It's like, you know, yeah, the struggle is in there, but like these characters that they're depicting are like people, like they're people that I know. Like I could walk into the screen and be in a scene or something and shake hands with these people and call them a friend. Cause I'm like, yeah, I know that guy, you know? Um, And so like, I think that that's really important, not just because of like place behind the screen or on screen, but also um, just for like the average viewer, when they're watching things like normalizing us um, in these different spaces and in these different stories to show that like we can be whatever, like we don't, we don't have to be just like limited to these boxes that, you know, society has placed us in um, and that the sky's the limit on whatever stories could be told or how we want to tell the story or, you know, just all of those things that I think mean so much. Um, And it's very, it's very edifying to the mm-hmm. soul. Like it, it kind of, a lot of times I find like watching certain content um, like that, it, it goes beyond just entertainment. Like I like watching Black Panther is a good example of that. Like it, it did something for the soul to like see like, oh my gosh, like my nerdy side, I'm a, you know, I'm a Pan-African studies major, you know? And so I'm looking like, oh, they represented this country and that country, this culture and that culture. Oh, they show this detail. Like, you know, just seeing that in a um, mainstream space like that, that makes us be able to feel proud and stand tall in a way where it's not just going against the grain, but just seeing like, oh, we can be embraced on a large scale and not have to always tuck off in a corner to like be our boldest selves. Mm-hmm. Christian and I had a conversation before the interview where we uh, we're we're wondering what your opinion is on like white filmmakers either producing, writing, or directing black stories you know oh man yeah like, so this uh... is <laughs> oh sorry i didn't mean to cut you off um no i was gonna say this is a this is a good question this actually came no, no, up, um 
<laughs> this actually came up um when I was in um I so I did I went to grad school at USC and finished there got my MFA but before that mm-hmm. I actually did a semester at Howard University and this was a very hot button topic I had a professor that was like mm-hmm. going hard on Steven Spielberg for having done um mm-hmm. the color purple um he was not happy mm-hmm. about it and he had some choice things to say about it and I was like okay mm-hmm. I, I hear you like but from my standpoint um right I kind of have I kind of take a slightly different approach. I don't think that our stories can't be told by other people. I think where the rub for me and probably mm-hmm. other filmmakers that have like sometimes said, mm, I don't know about that one, is that our stories have been shepherded and um, sanitized so much when we try to tell our stories that sometimes it mm-hmm. can it can leave you with a bad taste in your mouth when you see somebody else go and have the freedom to fully tell your story. So on paper, I don't necessarily mind the idea of a white person telling a black person's story as long as they do it justice. But I think I'll probably appreciate it a lot more the more that black people are able to freely tell their stories because we're we we get a litany of things we can't do um, and things that right. if we're even able to have a seat at the table in the first place, you know, and so mm-hmm. I th- I, th- I don't right. think that our stories can't be told by others the same way. I don't think I can't tell a white person's story or any other cultures or, you know, ethnic group's story, but you better do it justice. Like that's, that's for anybody. Mm-hmm. Like even as a black filmmaker, I better tell a black story with justice or I don't need to touch it either. Um, but I don't, yeah, I don't think that a white person is incapable of telling a good black story. Um, so it's just, you know, a matter of just having respect for the material that you're telling and just making sure that you're, you know, telling some really like salad balanced human stories. I'll I'll get my popcorn mm-hmm. and pull up. Right. I don't mind. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because so because Christian and I we were so there's a I was thinking of uh, I just started writing recently, and I was thinking about making a like we're we're talking about uh, a a story of these uh, three Black Panthers who are incarcerated. Uh, they're known as the Angola Three, mm-hmm. and uh, we were thinking about like what if what if we wrote like a, a story about that about them right like because i'm writing now so i'm like this is this would be an, an amazing uh project to work on and um write writing it as our first like feature and stuff but a, a lot of questions came because came into my mind because i'm like i'm i'm this white guy making like wanting to write the story essentially about black suffering right and mm-hmm. if if you're gonna sell it, you're making a profit off of it. So now I, you know, you'd be making a profit off of black suffering, and that mm-hmm. that's a whole nother issue right there. You know, it's like mm-hmm. you have to make a living, but at the same time, it's it it kind of uh, muddies your intentions. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so it, what what do you think are some? I don't know. What do you? <laughs> I don't know if there what kind of solutions or ideas you have about that but because when we like initially had this conversation um because he was all like yeah like i have this great idea but like but am i the one to tell it exactly right exactly. yeah i was I'm like what like, well, all depends man <laughs> am I, like, yeah and i was like i think you should ask her this <laughs> man that's a that's a tough one so um I th- what, so you are you were thinking about co-writing it with Christian or were you thinking to like pin this one on your own? Well, 
I was going to, I was going to do it. Well, I, I was obviously going to be working with Christian, but Christian, Christian's so busy. He's, he's, he's applying to <laughs> grad school right now. I don't, I don't think Christian, Christian, do you think you have the time? <laughs> it depends on when you make it. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> you know it's, I don't know, you know, it, it, I'd be doing, I'd have to do a lot. I, I think I'd be primarily writing it myself for now. And yeah. I'd have, of course, Christian, Christian like reads all my work. So, um, so I think at some point Christian would be, but primarily it would just be me for now. You know, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be doing a lot of research for months, you know, before ever like actually writing anything. Yeah. Um, and we talked about, we're like, we're like, okay, I, I, I have to do the research. I have to like, I have to actually, we, we are, we actually interviewed one of the, one of the um, people who were, who were working on freeing, the Angola three during mm-hmm. that time um, for the, he was, he was on the podcast, Re- wow. Malik Rahim. And uh, so like we, you know, we've, we, we know we, we definitely will be doing the work to yeah. actually tell the story and, and do the research. Um, but we're thinking about like the, the making a profit off of black suffering. I told Christian, like I, if, if I like, if I was to like sell this story, I'd probably just donate my salary, like donate, the money I make. Cause like, you know, it, it just doesn't, you know, it doesn't feel right. It's like, mm-hmm. I want to tell this story and it's not about the money. So just take out the money as a factor. Mm-hmm. Unless, that's a, I mean, that's if a, you have to pay some bills, but like, <laughs> right now that's a, that's an interesting, I think that's an interesting, um, that the, the latter end, I think that's an interesting thought, the idea of like, you know, putting the money forward in a way where it's, you know, maybe you pay it forward back into the community, you know. But the other thing, too, is um, I think it's important to do your due diligence. It sounds like you're already on the road to that. Mm-hmm. But I actually would challenge you on the idea that you're telling a story about black suffering. There definitely I'm obviously there's a suffering element to it, but I think maybe something in your goal or like the angle that you take on the story um could be something where it's not exploitative um you know because every you know every narrative is going to have a conflict you know and especially if you decide to tell a story um that involves black people on some level there might be an element you know of of you know the struggle or the suffering that's there but i think if a good example um what's that movie um i think it was called detroit the one that um Catherine Bigelow did, um, to me that one felt exploitative and I love her work usually, but it leaned so much into the the suffering and the suffering alone and I didn't feel like I got to know the characters enough that it just it turned me off. And it wasn't because she was a white filmmaker, it was mm-hmm. just because it centered the suffering over the people. And so I think if your lens lands just right on centering the people mm-hmm. over their suffering you might be on to something so that you don't have to have like the guilt factor. And I think too, like, you know, involving um, other, you know, black people in, in the process, you know, if not as a co-writer, you know, maybe you have a black producer or just other collaborators that are like, you know, that know, that know the subject matter and can, you know, give some sort of like insight and voice. Um, You know, I, I think, I think there's ways to it. Like, I don't think that, um, and, and I know other filmmakers might not necessarily agree with me on that, but I don't think our stories are off limits with not just the right intentions, but also the right approach. Um, cause mm-hmm. to me at the end of the day, seeing like compelling stories with our faces on it, like 
I I'm I'm with it. Like I I have no reason to not want to see a great story with us in it. On I mean I want to see a great story. Period. But a great story with us in it, told by a white person, doesn't bother me as long as you do due diligence. The same way it would bother me if a black person told a story and did not do due diligence. Like if the story sucks, I'm gonna be mad. So just mm-hmm. don't make it suck. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Just wasting my money. <laughs> That's time I'll never get back. That's so, all I say when I watch something bad. It's like, man, I'll never get back. <laughs> <laughs> Hour and a half of my time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree with you on that. Like, I sort of, because when we were talking about it, he, uh, Matthew did make a great point when it comes to like profiting off of black suffering. But I said, well, at the same time, somebody has to tell the story too and pave that way because in not all the fields, you know, and things like that do black people have a seat like you mentioned earlier. So sometimes it takes a white director or storyteller or filmmaker in order to introduce these stories so they can start opening that door for more black storytellers um or directors or producers or what have you um and it's important to have that consultation of somebody not only of that same race but also the same background too because my perspective of what racism is and things like that growing up here in california and la and inglewood and all that compared to where my dad is from mobile alabama is two different things Mm -hmm. um so you not only have to make sure that you check off that, you know, that color box, if you will, or that, you know, oh, well, you know, I need to make sure that I have, um, you know, a black staff or black writers or people that help, you know, guide me while I'm storytelling, which is important, but also make sure that they have different perspectives too in the right perspectives so you can, you know, make sure that the story has justice. Mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah definitely that and i mean for anybody yeah. that um since i did bring up lovecraft country for anybody that loves the show the show was based on source material that was written by a white man so i rest my case <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and there you have it yeah <laughs> yeah but um yeah i think that was that was amazing. Um, I don't have any more questions. Did you have any more questions for that? No, I mean, I think that was great. <laughs> we could talk I about to... we could talk about how COVID's affected film. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. I, for a lot of yeah, for a lot of the filmmakers listening to this, uh, right? They are they know <laughs> just how how much it's affected all of us. Oh man, right. it's been a real. Yeah. Like, yeah, like so I um I I first went back to set back in ooh, it feels like ancient history now, but it was back in um <laughs> I think it was like late July and um no, it was mid July. But um yeah, it was it was definitely an adjustment. Um thankfully uh it was a it was a smaller shoot, so it was mostly just like inter- a series of interviews with mm-hmm. people coming coming in and out. Um but you know, of course, having the PPE on set and lots of hand sanitizer and all that stuff, but mostly having to like unlearn like behaviors, like, you know, because on set, you're used to being in close quarters with people and chumming it up. Or like, if you're, right. you know, from my role, like directing, it's like, sometimes I might, you know, get in close quarters with a, um, a subject or an actor. And so I had to like, I found myself having to like, 
back myself up like more times than a little bit um, to just make sure, um, you know, one, that I was being safe on set, but also that I wasn't like making anybody else uncomfortable. And then everybody has like different comfortability levels. So there's like lots of awkward moments and stuff like that. Um, but by the second time I was um, on shooting on location, um, it was it was fine. It, you know, it's still it's still different. You know, they had the whole COVID check, you know, where they ask you the questions and they do the um, the temperature check. Lunches are individually packed, all that kind of stuff. Um, but I think overall, just being so happy just to be around people again, minus a screen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> probably was like the trade-off you know like oh my gosh like actual humans in person this is great um you know that that made it that made it great um but yeah it's I'm I'm curious to see like how our industry is going to evolve because of this because I think that we were kind of at a crossroads in a lot of ways already and then COVID kind of like sped some things up um but I don't know that I'm, I'm not sure if this is our normal, but I definitely know that we're not going to go back to normal as we knew it. Um, you know, it right. just feels like we're in for like a new, a new experience. The only thing I hope will come back. Um, and right now that's feeling a little shaky is like the movie theaters. Like I know some people are like, mm -hmm. Oh, now you can just stream. You know, I know Disney was like, right. you know, doing their whole on demand thing for $30 for Mulan and a couple other studios were doing stuff like that. But I do miss like gathering together with other people. And I wish I could say that it was because of the big screen and the great surround sound, because that's what filmmakers are supposed to say, but it's really because of the popcorn. And so I miss that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, it's not the same. Yeah. Streaming is all right, you know, but it's like, I want to get out the house and go. And, yeah. Hear other people, and I want to be able to roll my eyes when somebody brings out their cell phone. You know all that stuff. I want mm -hmm. that again. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's harder to uh, to stay engaged, I think, with streaming because you have so many. You know, your your TV isn't as big as like a, a theater screen. You know, you have so mm -hmm. many things in your in your vision, and and so many things distracting you, and your and your phone going off, and all yeah. of that. So I think it's harder to stay engaged with films. It's not the same. You're so right about that. Like, I know sometimes I'll find myself like mindlessly scrolling and it's like, I'm like, I'm not even looking at anything. Like, why am I doing this? But it's just because like you said, like, it's so easy to get distracted or you can hit pause. And I'm like, I, something about being in the movie theaters, you know, like, okay, I just spent like a hundred dollars on this nonsense. So now I got to sit here and make sure I watch every moment to make my money's worth out of this moment, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, hopefully that'll come back. And I just hope that, you know, just from a jobs perspective too, like I have so many friends that have kind of like, you know, had to go for an extended amount of time without work. And I, you know, I was blessed that I was able to work consistently throughout. Um, but I, it's, it's just been hard. And, you know, I just hope for the sake of so many people that like some form of normal that we can sustain will, will return so we can get on with it and keep making cool stuff. Yeah, my wildest, my wildest theater experience was that when I, I visited New Orleans with Christian, like, was it two years ago now? It's a year? just about two years ago. I feel like and, it was uh, <laughs> And uh, we, went to a, we went to watch uh, Us when it first came out. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, so we, we go to this theater, and there, there are, like, waiters and waitresses coming along, and, and, you know, you could order food. And I'm like, oh, this is cool. I've never, you know, I've never experienced this before. And then the movie comes on, and there people you could still order 
while and so what they do is they walk in front of you to hand you the food and they walk in front of all these other oh, people no. to, to <laughs> hand to they like during the whole movie so i'm sitting there watching us this horror film and i'm just laughing i like i i just can't stop laughing i started i just for fun i started ordering stuff like i was ordering like drinks and stuff and i just couldn't <laughs> stop laughing because you just see you just see people like with like these red dots uh, walking around handing people food throughout the entire film and i was like oh, what is no. this this is so neat like this is so different than what i'm used to <laughs> yeah because i know like for the, even theaters i've been to like they'll be like you got to order your food like you know at the top like basically when the previews are still coming on so they yeah, can hurry up right stuff out before not the this movie one. <laughs> one. Oh, that is funny i would be so annoyed <laughs> do you mind <laughs> i just i couldn't stop laughing I would have told them, no, you're going to have to go inside the, the row behind me and then come all the way around. Exactly. <laughs> that is crazy. But I mean, shoot, now, I, I would, what I would give for them to be walking in front of me now in, in, a, big, in a big theater. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. But hopefully, I mean, it's, I do see signs of hope because, like, um, I think, was it City Walk? They, they were supposed to open. Um, and I know they have a movie theater, so I'm like, ah. Oh. Maybe they're just gonna have like reduced capacity in some of these places. I I I was probably like one of the few people that didn't catch on to the whole like drive through experience, but that's still on my list of things um, I want to check out because that's like I feel like that's like a very California thing, and I just haven't had a chance to do that right. yet. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I went to uh, in L.A. In L.A., they do it in downtown, and we went to watch. Uh, we went to Get Out, the other film, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and uh, people would honk instead of instead of like cheering and, and, and screaming or whatever people would just honk on their cars throughout the entire like any any time like something happened or they got spooked <laughs> people would just start honking and honking and i was like <laughs> oh man it's, oh, it's fun I, de I definitely recommend it oh yeah, man I, I definitely recommend it oh yeah I'll, I'll definitely i'll definitely check it out well thank you so much for joining us Lori. thanks and thanks so much for having me um definitely love what you guys are doing and i'll um be sure to spread the word um and if you're ever looking for more um female filmmakers i know some dope uh tv tv directors and all kinds of um producers awesome. and really talented yeah, we'd, we'd women love that to. are rocking it thank you for listening to this week's episode of our small majority don't forget to check out Lori's new video time to be limitless for hoka one one on youtube We'll link it in the description below. You can also find more of her work at hiddengemstories.com. That's right. And next week, we're releasing the very first episode of Little White Lies, a series of satirical newscasts and sketches that exposes common misconceptions, untold truths, and oversights in American history that originated from Black roots, hosted by none other than yours truly and Petty LaBelle. And don't forget to follow us on iTunes or any platform you're listening to on right now so you can get instant updates whenever we upload a new episode. You can now also leave us a voice message where you ask us any questions you may have or any comments about the show for a chance to get a response in a future episode. All you have to do is check the description of this episode, click the link, and you're on your way. Lastly, we have a new website we're very proud of. Check it out at OurSmallMajority.com. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time. See you next time.